0: Hello, and welcome to Runway Girl Network In Conversation, a deep dive into aviation and the passenger experience. I'm RGN contributing editor John Walton, and today I'm in conversation with Reuters Chief Correspondent Asia Aviation and Defense Jamie Freed. Today we're talking about how the instability in Hong Kong has been affecting aviation within the region. But first, thanks to our sponsor. In Conversation is brought to you by Bolteron, a Simona company, purveyor of high-performance thermoplastics for tomorrow's aircraft interiors. As you draw the latch for your tray table, consider the texture and form of the tray, shaped specifically for your in-flight service convenience. That's Bolteron. Learn more at B-O-L-T-A-R-O-N dot com. Now, Jamie, welcome to In Conversation. Hi. So, what's been going on in Hong Kong? Uh, Give us a a quick overview of uh, what the instability has been this, I guess, last year now, and how it's uh, been affecting aviation.
1: Sure. I mean, there's been these widespread anti-government protests for months, um, I think mostly due to fears among sort of creeping mainland Chinese influence on the city. But for aviation, things really heated up in early August uh, when the protesters disrupted the airport operations for a few days. And there were these awful scenes on TV around the world of passengers being blocked by protesters carrying their luggage above their heads as they tried to reach their flights. And transport to the airport was also disrupted at that point. So even though it only lasted a few days, it led to this sort of damaging process for months afterwards that the airport's not operating normally. And um, with, you know, in Hong Kong, the airline staff there at Cathay and Hong Kong Airlines are locals. And like many of the people there, they attended some of the protests when they weren't working. So Cathay Pacific's chairman said he would dream of telling staff what to think um, in a political sense at a press conference after their results. But shortly after that, China's aviation regulator said any Cathay staff member who was caught protesting would be deemed a security threat and couldn't even fly over Chinese airspace, which Cathay does for the majority of their flights. And so Cathay then started firing people who effectively couldn't fly anymore, you know, pilots and cabin crew, and its CEO and deputy CEO and, and chairman all resigned rather abruptly. Um, and, you know, due to these protests themselves, which have often been pretty violent and even led to sear gas being dispersed in the central business district at one point, many tourists and business travelers are staying away from Hong Kong and arrivals have dropped by more than 40%. Um, so mainline Chinese have been particularly averse from visiting, um, possibly because they're singled out for speaking Mandarin by Hong Kong locals who speak Cantonese
0: and so that's obviously led to a, a significant drop in in the inbound tourism in terms of those uh, the, the i guess the, the three primary airlines based in hong kong so cathay pacific hong kong airlines and of course hk express uh, which is now part of the cathay pacific uh, family um uh, how has how has that been affecting them what's uh, apart from the, the the drop in tourism what have they been experiencing
1: sure uh, for Cathay, a lot of the focus has been getting on increased transit traffic transit traffic through the airport you know people flying sydney london via hong kong for example and they've increased that a lot but it comes at a cost in, in terms of yields um, because it tends to be lower yielding than people going to and from hong kong uh for hong kong express actually sources have told me they're doing you know relatively better than Cathay and hong kong airlines in part because they're an airline used by locals as a low-cost carrier and and locals still want to get out of hong kong um perhaps especially due to the protests and get away for the weekend and things like that on short haul flights. Um, and Hong Kong Airlines was already in financial trouble before this. Um, and they've now cut pretty much all of their long haul routes and have taken, you know, an even bigger financial hit due to the lack of demand.
0: Right. So what's the basis for their problems? It, it feels like it's a little bit of expansion, but how does that all fit into the into the picture?
1: I think HA itself, which is the owner of Hong Kong Airlines, was just overly ambitious, and they did overexpand. And unfortunately, they haven't had enough money to pay their lessors, or at some points even their pilots. And you see reports of more pilots and cabin crew being sacked at the moment. Uh, you know, these flights to LA and Vancouver, and you know Australia and New Zealand—they sounded great in theory. And you know, Cathay was the yeah, but Cathay is a major competitor, and Cathay has most of the business traffic in Hong Kong locked up. So so, Hong Kong Airlines was just never going to get the same sort of yields that Cathay has on those flights?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was, it was super interesting. I, I flew on them from um, uh, Japan to Hong Kong and on to New Zealand. Um, and the, 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 pricing on their business class flights was, you know, about premium economy on any other airline. Um, and it which was an amazing price, but the service wasn't up there. Now, I know they've made some, uh, some changes to their, to their service concept since, but it's, it's really interesting that they're, you know, really putting back within the region. So what's their, what's their full, foregoing strategy? Is it largely flights into the greater China? Is it, uh, regional out of Hong Kong?
1: I think it's it's mostly regional out of Hong Kong at the moment, but they're being forced to cut various flights, too, because they're under scrutiny by the aviation regulator at the moment.
0: For general instability or something else?
1: Instability and lack of finances. Uh, there was a point about a month ago where we thought they might actually have to shut down. H&A somehow found the cash. But then as of December 31st, there were still then stories about them you know, sacking more people in the last day of the, of the year, um, which suggests that the cash flow issues just aren't over at the moment.
0: Let's turn to Cathay Pacific. Um, what do the new people in charge mean for, for Cathay after that departure of, well, first of all, board chairman John Sloser, uh, CEO Rupert Hogg, and uh, Paul Liu, the chief customer and commercial officer?
1: Well, the new people in charge are all Swire people. Um, Cathay is controlled by Swire Pacific, which manages the company. So, in that sense, not a lot has changed. Um, but so that naturally, you know, following the playbook, I guess, that they followed in the global financial crisis and in SARS in, in cutting flights. Uh, so far, they aren't parking planes, but they um, decided to return a few to lessors early. Uh, the new CEO, Augustus Tang, though, has kept a very low public profile. He didn't attend an analyst briefing in November and an association of eight. Pacific Airlines conference that was supposed to be hosted by him was cancelled at the last minute. So sources tell me he's kind of more focused on smoothing ties with mainland China and he's, he's not as much a people person. So his deputy, Ronald Lamb, is taking a more active role internally.
0: Interesting. So which part of the business does Tang come from?
1: He actually comes from Heiko, which is the maintenance business owned by Swire. So he has an MRO sort of background. He was at Cathay about a decade ago, but then after that, he's been running Heiko, which for a time was a separate listed company, but it didn't have a lot of scrutiny you know, by the investment market because it was dominated by Swire, which then later took it over.
0: Right, and of course, our RGN listeners will be familiar with Heiko as a seat maker as well. Um, they took over, if I remember rightly, the U.S. based Timco, um, and now have the U.S. operation as well as well. What is really a this point one of the one of the larger global MRO operations, um, for for that sort of maintenance, repair, and overhaul market. Um, Jimmy, do you think there's going to be many changes to Cathay's strategy, um, especially around? You know, we, we talked about Hong Kong Express, uh which was independent and Pendleton is now is now Cathay, um, and of course Cathay Dragon, which is their um, Chinese-speaking market-focused uh, sub-brand carrier, as it were.
1: I think Cathay Dragon is probably taking the biggest hit, just because it is, uh, you know, mainland Chinese um, routes that they mostly fly. And even some mainland companies, at the height of things in in August, told their company or their employees not to fly on Cathay, you know, due to perceived safety or security issues raised by the Chinese aviation regulator. So you are seeing them transfer some planes that were supposed to go to Cathay Dragon. Some new A321neos will now instead go to Hong Kong Express. But I think some of that was also inevitable um, once Cathay took over Hong Kong Express last year because they lacked a low-cost carrier and it really is another way for them to expand.
0: And of course, with Hong Kong Express now being part of Cathay, I'm sure you remember Qantas was, was, has been for quite some time trying to um, start up a, a Jetstar Hong Kong um, operation. Um, now, that was, uh, last time I checked, that was sort of dependent on being able to get the slots which would result from the third runway. How's that project going?
1: Um, well, Jetstar Hong Kong has actually been dead for a few years um, since you know Cathay fought hard against it and the Hong Kong regulator came down on Cathay's side. The principal place of business wouldn't really be in Hong Kong. It would be in Melbourne, where Jetstar is based. Uh, so since then, though, there has been an issue with lack of slots. And that's why Cathay was kind of um, they would they perhaps would have started their own LCC rather than buying Hong Kong Express. But there weren't enough slots at Hong Kong Airport. And so this was the most efficient way for them to expand before a third run. Runway comes in in 2024,
0: and, and that project's on track. The runway project,
1: it, it is at the moment. I mean, there's no signs that it's being delayed. I, you know, Hong Kong is a very slot constrained airport in normal times, not as much in recent months. Um, but that's a long term project, and I think there's a long term rising demands in the region, so it, it would be pretty unlikely for them, you know, to cancel or, or you know or halt
0: that project. Mm-hmm. And uh, how will that? change in uh, Hong Kong in terms of the uh, number of slots available? What does that mean? Does that mean uh, expansion for Cathay and local airlines? Does it mean more flights in um, from uh, slot restricted uh, foreign carriers? Is it timing changes?
1: I mean, analysts say it's sort of positive and negative for Cathay, positive in the sense it gets to expand, but negative in that it brings in a lot more competition potentially. So Cathay will be looking um, to add to its fleet and to lock up as many slots as they can get. But you might also see, you know, if the situation in Hong Kong returns to normal, you know, rather than the protest situation, you would see foreign carriers looking to expand their flights because slots are very hard to come by, especially in, you know, peak times or to get them at the same time every day is an issue with the
0: yeah and so do you think that's why cathay has been taking more smaller aircraft um so for example um building up its a350 fleet compared with the size of the 777 fleet that it that it previously had because it wants to lock in as many slots as it can um between now and 2024
1: I don't think so completely because um, Cathay has the 777X on order, which they're supposed to get I think, around 2021 or 2022. So I think it may just be a timing issue and that the A350 has come in before the 777X. And they're also an A350-1000 operator. So they operate the larger version, which is pretty similar in size to the 777-300ER.
0: Right. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Um uh... Let's talk about the airlines flying to Hong Kong from elsewhere. So um, I know that quite a few of them have been you know, starting to, to downsize their aircraft. Um, what, what does that look like? <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, you had United Airlines come out just today and say they'd take a $90 million charge in the fourth quarter due to the lack of demands from Hong Kong, and they've kind of cut and restructured some of their routes there. And and Qantas has taken a charge of around $17 million US dollars, and they've downgaged some of their planes. And you had some carriers like South African Airways, which has a lot of its own problems suspending flights to Hong Kong. Uh, so you definitely have seen a major decline in capacity. Um, for the latest statistics, in November, there was a 16% Fall in passengers relative to the prior November and a 10% drop in flight movements. So what you see though is the airport has allowed airlines to cut flights and to maintain their slots at least through the through March. Uh, so we'll see what happens after that. But the use it or use, use it or lose it policy that normally applies isn't in place at the moment. So airlines can cut flights without consequences.
0: Right. And I guess that, that gives them some flexibility as well. Um, It's interesting you mentioned South African because didn't they just take some, um, is it ex-Hong Kong Airlines slash HNA aircraft or uh, a sort of long term lease situation, some A350s? Uh,
1: Yes, um, they have. And um, Fiji Airways has also taken some. So obviously with Hong Kong Airlines expansion cut short, the aircraft are going elsewhere.
0: And do you think those will eventually return to to Hong Kong slash HNA Group somewhere else, uh, or or is this you know really the 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 end of their long haul ambitions?
1: I don't know that it would be the end in the longer term, but obviously they need to recover significantly financially beforehand. And H&A you know, has basically had that airline in the market for the last year or two as well. No one's bought it yet, but it potentially if someone wanted to buy it, that would give it an opportunity for growth with a better you know, funded person behind
0: it. Mm-hmm. Who might be in the market for an airline like that? I don't know.
1: As I said, it's been for sale for a year or two and no one's bought it so far. Uh, Analysts have speculated um, that potentially someone like China Southern or China Eastern could be interested because uh, Cathay has a relationship with Air China.
0: Oh, interesting. I mean – China Southern, of course, has its its main hub at Guangzhou, which is what like an hour away, less on the new high speed train, right?
1: But um, Air China also owns Shenzhen Airlines, which is right next to Hong Kong, and it invests in Cathay too.
0: Right? Yeah, it's 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 a fascinating uh, set of airlines. I mean, I was um, looking at the, the the list of new airports in and around. Um, uh, major Chinese cities, um, you know, but that from um, you know Beijing, dashing down all the way to to the to the new regional airports. I, mean, I say regional airports, but these are you know very large <laughs> airports in in what are growing cities. Um, and it's a it's a it's a huge space for growth, isn't it?
1: Oh, definitely. And again, those second and third tier cities, in particular, have been adding a lot of long haul international flights to places like the US and Europe and Australia. Yeah.
0: Yeah, do you think there's any going to be an impact in that from from the the Hong Kong situation? I mean, obviously the um, there's been parts of the US government who've been getting um, uh, should we say a little bit shirty with with China over the um, the situation in Hong Kong. Um, do you think that that's going to result in drops of um, some of those uh, some of those long haul routes as a result of demand?
1: We have seen a little bit of dropping of some of those Chinese long haul routes um, and the Chinese carriers are then refocusing those wide bodies towards Southeast Asia or Japan or Korea where there's high demand
0: at the moment. The, the, one of the things I find really interesting is this, this China um, route overlap policy. Yes. would you tell our listeners about um, about what that is and how that that affects the, the, the growth of Chinese carriers?
1: Well, traditionally, there's only been allowed one airline for each route, So it basically like Air China can fly Beijing to London and others can't. There's some exceptions, and it's been opening up more and more, but it's also especially opening up now that there's a new airport in Beijing. So that's creating some opportunities uh, for Chinese carriers to expand from the new airport, China Eastern and China Southern in particular. But what you have seen among Chinese carriers is basically a race to snap up routes, even if they're not profitable but just to, to mark your territory so you see routes to places like dublin or tel aviv or iceland you know opening from cities that aren't always first-tier cities but it's just so that they can mark their territory and have that route so someone else doesn't get in there later um, because then they would could be blocked from it
0: right uh, and what are they doing when they do that are they funneling uh, connecting traffic in from other chinese cities over there, uh, their hub or are they operating the aircraft half empty kind of thing
1: uh, probably a mix of both depending on the case
0: right interesting interesting stuff so so for these purposes um are they treating beijing shodu the old the old beijing main beijing airport and beijing dashing differently are, are are those two quote-unquote cities for purposes of these rules
1: Yes, they seem to be treated differently. And in general, China's been relaxing the one airline, one route policy on super popular routes so that on on the biggest routes, um, I don't have it to hands. But, you know, I would imagine I think it was things like, you know, New York or London or L.A. that they were offering the opportunities for more than one airline to get in there if there was enough demand. It depended on the amount of demand. Right. I
0: mean, I've seen quite a lot of... Um, uh... Direct but not non-stop flights, so uh, LA to Beijing to somewhere else, um, mm-hmm. as being operated by by a new airline, um, which has which has been really interesting and has been opening up a lot of um, uh, new ways for people to fly. Um, I guess one of the from the passenger experience side, um, the the equation for Chinese airlines has for quite some time been yeah you know they're not they're not great, but they're very inexpensive is is that still the reality for 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 the most part?
1: Uh, I think so based on but I've only flown on two of them myself, but Basically, is an English speaker. They cater toward Chinese speakers. I remember opening the in-flight magazine on China Eastern, and they had the head like the, the headlines of all of those stories in the magazine in English, and that was it. Every other word in the magazine was in Mandarin, which isn't very helpful for me. And so, basically, they cater mostly toward the Chinese audience, especially compared to regional peers. I've flown on Taiwanese carriers or you know, Cathay, Singapore, you know, Japanese carriers, Korean carriers, and all of them seem to have more english for passengers
0: <laughs> right yeah um i mean one of the one of the joys of course is that um uh, local cuisine is it works actually pretty well on the plane um so you know you can you can have a, a fairly good meal but it has been uh, interesting to see the the chinese carriers moving up in the passenger experience stakes of course um a lot of them have been buying some of the newest business class seats um, uh, and indeed, you know, sort of uh, leapfrogging some of the of, of their regional and indeed global competitors in in that way. And it'll be interesting to see uh, whether that continues, um, whether they continue their what was essentially their two thousands policy of investing in new aircraft with pretty good hard product, but struggling to to stack up internationally. And I don't think this is a question of international perspective of of, of Chinese passenger experience, um, and then targeting. Uh, uh, the, the Chinese market and, and Western people just sort of not not getting it, I think you know, fundamentally I think there are some, uh, there are some gaps in terms of the of the service that people can expect there, um, so we'll be interesting to see whether we get another round of that or whether they 'll be um, raising their game in terms of serving a, a, a global market. Um, on the soft product side of things. So um, uh, service, and particularly, of course, in, in in-flight entertainment.
1: I think definitely they have a very large home market. So I think their primary goal is to cater to their home market at the moment, which makes some sense. Um,
0: US carriers
1: you know, are fairly insular as well. They have a like, huge home market. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and of course, you know, the US is a, is a huge destination in in its own right as well. Um, so we, we talked briefly about some of the other regional carriers. Um, what effect has this situation in Hong Kong had on those other hubs? I mean, we, we hear a lot about the financial services industry um, sort of quietly moving uh, quite a bit of their uh, operations and or assets into, uh, into Singapore in particular. What's this? Does that translate into, into the airline world?
1: Not a huge amount yet. Um, it, it may perhaps be helping with loads um, into Singapore, but I, I looked at the data from Changi Airport, and in the last couple of months, since things really blew up in Hong Kong, there's only been about one percentage point more traffic than there had been, or you know, in the, in the months earlier the year, in the year when things were calmer in Hong Kong. So there doesn't seem to be a massive redirection to Singapore. But that said, the hotels are certainly fuller, and they're reporting rising rates. Um, so yeah, for the airlines, it might be a more of a load thing and a yield thing than it is. Capacity thing for the moment.
0: Yeah, interesting stuff. I mean, I was in Singapore uh, a few weeks ago, and it was it was noticeably busy in in Changi. Um, I you know I I always keep an eye out for, for for what the airport you know looks and feels like, especially at peak times. Um, and yeah, it was it, it was busy. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how those how those stats sort of pan out. You know, sort of from 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 last month and from, of course into into twenty twenty. Looking sort of more widely. Obviously, there's, there's the question of, 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 Taipei and Taiwan and the Taiwan relationship with China. Um, do we think that there is, uh, and, and are you hearing that that is changing? What's the, what's going to be the impact, especially as, as we see the launch of, um, a new competitor carrier in, uh, in Taipei with Starlux, who are, uh, who have some really big ambitions.
1: Well, earlier, or, last, or sorry, last year, China banned some of the group tour visas into Taiwan. So there's definitely been a fall in mainland traffic to Taiwan at the moment. Uh, but that said, I mean, Taiwan remains a popular destination, and they're very popular with people from you know Hong Kong, Japan, and Korea, and elsewhere. And we're also heading into an election in Taiwan, and sources have told me that traditionally that's when Chinese are most averse about traveling there, or the government clamps down and puts in restrictions. Elections. So, depending on the results of the election, things may normalise afterwards a bit more.
0: Right. Yeah, and, and that'll be interesting, of course, because that's a, um, I guess, a part partly a balance in the region as well. Um, now, talking about some of those other hubs, um, there's a bit of concern about this. Um, what it looks like an unidentified pneumonia outbreak in uh, in Wuhan. What's the latest on that? Do we have uh, do we have any clarity on on what that is?
1: No, we don't have any clarity at the moment. And uh, worryingly for Hong Kong, which faces a lot of problems due to the protests, you know, they've had some people there hospitalized. Um, So far, the reports I've seen imply those people came on the train. But clearly, you know, they went through the SARS experience there in 2003, which is very damaging. And I'm seeing reports now of face masks selling out in Hong Kong and the government saying that they may be able to apply quarantines um, if things get worse. So that's obviously a big concern. And not just for Hong Kong, but for the broader region, there's been a case in Singapore too, I believe.
0: Right. Wow. And so, so is it? It, it is a type of pneumonia. Is it? That's what they're classifying
1: as. It. It as so far they're saying it's not SARS and it's not MERS, which is the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome.
0: Right. Um, obviously, you know those of us who who remember SARS um, and the um, the huge impact that that had on uh, certainly the region and, and indeed the sort of global. Um, aviation. Uh, What, if this does, um, if this does blow up, what's, what's the likely impact of, of that on, uh, on airlines?
1: Well, during SARS, um, you saw uh, Cathay would be hugely was hugely affected, and they were parking planes, and people were taking unpaid leave, and, and they were even having to sack people at some points. So obviously, with the situation already bad, there, if it if it did turn into something like SARS, you would probably see a further drop in, in demand um, for them, and potentially it would if given it originates in Wuhan, we could see a huge impact on the mainland carriers as well.
0: Right. Yeah. Um. Remind me, so what, what, what are the impacts of um, a, a communicable disease like this on aviation? What, what are the things that the airlines have to do in the event that this, this kind of thing arises? Is it a matter of disinfecting planes? Is it that passengers have to go through some sort of uh, medical or, or almost quarantine checks if they come from certain areas? What's the, what's the playbook here?
1: All of those sorts of things and also temperature checks at airports. Um, I think Changi and some other airports, and I've you know seen reports that in China too, they're now you know, they check passenger body temperatures to see if anything is unusual and then could call you aside for a check. But certainly they would want to know where you're traveling to and from and would be wanna, would want to be very careful in, in disinfecting planes.
0: Well, that's certainly going to be something to watch in, in, in 2020, um, and on which note, it's, it is the January of a new year and indeed a new decade, and it's one that I think you know, is going to be um, crucial for Asia-Pacific aviation. Um, what do you think are some of the early, I guess, sort of opportunities, challenges and trends um, that, that we're seeing and are going to be seeing over the, over the early half of this decade?
1: Certainly in terms of opportunities, there's a trend toward longer flights on single-aisle aircraft, and that's driven by the A321neo, and the long-range version especially, which could be pretty much a game-changer in the region. For low-cost carriers especially that don't want to operate wide bodies, it'll help open up a lot of point-to-point secondary routes. And there's also just a general trend away from the big hubs as we get to more point to point long haul flights, too, including potentially Sydney, London, non stop with Qantas. They could announce an order in March for planes that could do that from 2023. I think we're also seeing trends toward carriers getting more environmentally conscious in the region. Um you know, there's that flight shaming you know trend in in Europe, but we're also seeing more offsetting and also it's it's not even just the obvious airlines like say Qantas or Air New Zealand in the region that would that are leaders in this area. Cebu Pacific, which is a low-cost carrier in the Philippines, is now using more eco-eco-friendly cutlery that you can recycle. And I talked to someone at the airline about it and she said it, it definitely costs them more and she said frankly most Filipinos don't care that much about it, but the airline could see the longer term thren- tr- longer term trends and thought it was the right thing to do.
0: Yeah I mean it's really Pacific of course is going to be taking that um, A350 900 neo with I believe it's 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 dropped by one seat to 459 passengers. Um, so that that would I imagine be a lot of forks <laughs> per per year for the airline.
1: Well, ironically, it's a very envi- environmentally friendly flight as well because by having all economy in a very tight configuration, you burn less carbon per person than a carrier that offers a lot of legroom and business class seats.
0: <laughs> right. Um, now, looking back at the um, the the long haul narrow body trend, and particularly the A three hundred um, and twenty one XLR, which is the um, you know the the, the Extra long range version of the uh, of the F three twenty one Neo. Um, what I find interesting in particular is that that ten hour forty seven hundred nautical mile range is bang in China Europe in terms of. Uh, in terms of flight times. So I can absolutely see so this decade will will reflect, I guess, sort of what happened to the last decade um, in Australia, where there are a lot of uh, smaller wide bodies, so sort of A330s, um, even some 767s originally, and then moving to 787s, um, from a lot of Chinese airlines flying into a lot of. Uh, Australian airports and I can absolutely see as you know obviously the major European airports have um, quite a bit of capacity problem right and so the slots are quite expensive but I can absolutely see uh, a raft of uh, A321 NEOs flying into you know your secondary um, international airports in Europe you know so like Birmingham or Manchester in the UK, um, Lyon or, or Toulouse or Marseille in France. Um, uh, that's gonna be really interesting to watch I think um, and it's going to be fascinating to see how uh, how popular those are. Um, you know, I think one of the interesting things for, for me last year um, when Airbus announced this at the Paris Air Show um, was just how much of a, of a pushback there was on uh, the idea of sitting in a narrow body for 10 hours. Um, more, I think, than, than, than many people expected. Um, now, what what's your take on on whether that question will um, be in the mind of of travellers from Asia Pacific? Is that something that um, that people are are increasingly used to, given the amount of um, you know uh, the amount of narrow bodies flying around the region for for sort of mid haul purposes? Is is what what's that going to look like? Do you reckon?
1: I think in Asia, a lot of people still book on price and in some of these developing markets in particular, that's going to be the most important thing rather than comfort. I will say myself, having flown from Sydney to Bali on a narrow body before, that they really need to solve the bathroom problem in economy class in particular, um, because when you have two bathrooms for pretty much almost everyone on the plane, um, you know, that, that can create a huge queue that can even cause safety problems when there's turbulence
0: yeah no absolutely um i think that's that's, that's going to be a really interesting problem to solve um now airbus uh, told me last year that they have expanded the number of places in which you can install a bathroom on these planes so it used to be that for example essentially you could install them at the front or the back of the aircraft and not a lot of places in between um but I think if you look at some of the 757s that, um, that a lot of these aircraft are replacing, and which were, of course, a previous generation, quite a lot of those had a sort of mid-cabin lav. Um, and that's mm-hmm. now going to be possible on the on the A321s, um, which I think should go some way to solving it, and hopefully uh, some way to solving the uh, the mini-tiny bathroom problem um, and, indeed, the the lack of requirements by governments to make uh, narrow bodies uh, narrow body lavatories, accessible to people with reduced mobility and people who use wheelchairs um of course that's something that uh, that we've reported on quite a bit at rgn just sort of looking at how um you know it's important that that people who have um you know mobility requirements are able to perform basic things like go to the lavatory um it'll be interesting to see how that how that all shakes out on those narrow bodies definitely On that note, uh, let's bring today's conversation to a close. Uh, Readers, uh, listeners, we certainly hope you enjoyed it, and we're always keen to find out what you think. Please feel free to email me at john at runwaygirlnetwork.com with any suggestions. Thanks to our guest, Jamie Freed. Jamie, where can folks continue the conversation with you online?
1: I'm on Twitter, as at Jamie underscore Freed, or um, you can email me.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. What's your address?
1: Jamie.freed at thompsonreuters.com.
0: Brilliant. As ever, you can find me on Twitter at ThatJohn and everything from RGN on Twitter at RunwayGirl and at RunwayGirlNetwork.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening.